invite you to turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, or our text today. This text is the source for Selection 22 in Messiah, which, uh, to my mind, is one of the, one of the more poignant uh, with emotions of those songs. John chapter 1, then, verses 29 through 34 is our text for today. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Well, there's an incredible amount of truth focused on this one verse, verse 29. The next day saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of of the world, I'd like to uh, I'd like to point out that this this verse opens w- with a really radical claim that we might tend to overlook. Okay, we might rush through those opening words to get to the words that John the Baptist spoke, which of course are the focus of the text. But let's not forget those first words. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because clearly what John the Apostle, who's writing this text, does here is to firmly root this truth in human history, in time and space, in the material world in which we live. This happens at a particular time in a particular place. If you had been there, you would have seen with your own eyes this scene. Perhaps you have tried to visualize that yourself in your mind. Think of being in that crowd of people who have come out to listen to this rather strange but compelling prophet the last of the prophets, after a period of 400 years of silence, and you've, you've come to listen to this, this prophet, and you would have seen him then. You would have heard him for yourself, because this actually happened in time and space. And, and what if you'd been there that day, okay, and you'd been listening to John preach, Suddenly he stops, maybe even in mid-sentence. Okay, and, and you, 
you perceive that he's looking past you and the rest of the crowd. He's looking, and you turn then, your, your eyes turn to look in the direction that he is looking. And you see that he seems to be looking at a man approaching. Ordinary-looking Jewish man. Buys clothing, an ordinary working man. And, and as you're looking with John, you hear him then say, look. That's what that word behold means. See, look. It's a word often used in John's gospel. Look. Right there. There. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The gospel always juxtaposes like that. This real world in which you live and theological truth. Your faith is an intimate relationship with what actually transpired and continues to transpire in human history. That makes the Christian faith that you hold unique. The majority of people that you'll encounter and interact with in this world have no real basis for their faith. I mean, everybody believes something, right? Nobody exists just as, you know, an animal without any belief, without any faith, whether they admit it or not. Everybody believes something, but the majority of people or we could say just making it up as they go. Okay, there's really no real basis for their faith in anything except their own thoughts, their own opinions. Many people even admit that in this postmodern culture. They'll say, well, the only truth that you can have is the truth that you you manufacture, that you make up for yourself. You've, you've got to figure out what's true for you, and it might not be true for anybody else, but it's true for you. And, of course, that's no truth at all, right? So I want you to remember as you come into this text that, that you're, you're being told something which actually happened in time and space, and, you're being, and the significance of that event is being unfolded for you in a very personal way. John the Apostle, who wrote that gospel, opens his first letter, 1 John, that we have in, in the New Testament in this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Well, what's the truth that the apostle is communicating here? Well, for that, we, we want to make sure that we, 
we enter into this historical setting a little bit more. Because when, when John says that Jesus is the Lamb of God, he's communicating something very specific. Okay. Now think about, think about what it means for John to refer to God's Lamb here. John, you probably recall, is, is the son of a priest. We don't know that uh, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that he took up that, that role formally. But we know he's son of a priest, and so he would have been very familiar with the sacrificial system, as well as any Jew of the day would be. And you mentioned the lamb, particularly the lamb of God, God's lambs. Well, who are, what are God's lambs? Well, those, they're those lambs that are sacrificed every day at the temple. Maybe you remember that the law that God gave, Yahweh gave to his covenant people, Israel, said that the worship day was to begin with the sacrifice of a perfect male lamb. That lamb was to be slaughtered as a sacrifice to begin the worship day. And there was to be another sacrifice of a lamb at the end of the worship day. So every day, without fail, to be a lamb sacrificed in the morning, a lamb sacrificed in the evening. I know I've got some good math students here. So how many days in a year? 365? Two lambs a day? How many lambs does that make a year? Some of the older people are struggling to figure that out. <laughs> 730 lambs, 730 lambs sacrificed in the course of a normal year, not counting a leap year. Now, every regular Sabbath, every regular Sabbath, there is an additional two male lambs for to be slain as sacrifices. So how many weeks in a year? 52. 52 times 2, 104. Didn't know math was important for understanding the Bible, did you? 104 plus 730. Yes. So we've got 834 lambs so far. Now, God's law further specified that seven lambs and this is, again, in addition to those already sacrificed, seven lambs be sacrificed at the first, on the first day of every month. So how many months in a year? Twelve times seven? Eighty-four. Eighty-four plus eight hundred and thirty-four. Nine hundred and eighteen, yes, nine hundred and eighteen perfect male lambs slain as sacrifices. Now, the law also said that seven extra lambs were to be sacrificed on the first day of the seventh month, and an extra seven days 
seven lambs on the day of Pentecost and an extra seven lambs on the day of atonement. Seven plus seven plus seven, or seven times, 20, seven times three. 21. Some of you math students need to kick it into gear here. So 21 added to 918, and what's our total? 939. You beat me to the punch there. Very good. Now, the law specified additional daily sacrifices during the week-long festival of unleavened bread, which included seven lambs every day for seven days. Seven times seven. 49, 49 plus 939. Very good. There we go. 988. And I won't go into detail for the festival of weeks, a festival of booths, but there is a calendar there with uh, 14 lambs on certain days and as culminating seven. To make it short, is 105 more lambs during the festival of weeks. So we have we have 939 plus 105. One thousand ninety-three lambs every year sacrificed, and that is doesn't even begin. Okay, because we haven't taken into account Passover, when many households would sacrifice a lamb. You could sacrifice a kid, but many of them would have sacrificed lambs. That doesn't take into account the special offerings that would be given at the birth of a, the first male child, at a fellowship offering. There's about four to five million Jews living in Jesus' time, according to uh, professional estimates. So you can, you can readily see there are thousands, literally thousands of lambs being sacrificed every year there at Jerusalem in the temple. It's said that on holy days, Jerusalem, the water of the brook Kidron ran red with blood. So when, when John says, God's lambs, I want you to think about that. Now, why? Why would God have commanded that millions of lambs would be sacrificed over the course of Israel's history? By the time Jesus comes and John says this, millions of lambs, which have no sin in themselves, right? And they're not sacrificed for sin in a moral sense. They're sacrificed merely for ritual purity. It was simply because God said, in order to be ritually pure in your worship, in order for the temple to be a holy place, in order for your priest to minister as holy ministers, these lambs must be killed. 
Now surely, surely then when John refers to God's lamb here, he refers to that. Why, why, why were all those lambs sacrificed? Well, it has to be that a theological truth is being impressed upon those people that as they saw that blood flow, as they saw those animals die, it was impressed upon them if, if, if it requires an animal's lifeblood to keep our temple ritually holy, what must it require to take away our sin? Scripture clearly says the blood of an animal cannot take away sin. God was preparing for this day with those millions of sacrifices. So that when John looks up and says, look, there's God's lamb, people would understand. And that lamb that he pointed to would take away sin in a way that no mere animal could ever do. This is, in many ways, the climax of John's ministry. This is what it all leads up to. His last words in the gospel will be down there in verse 36, where he repeats, Behold the Lamb of God. This is the climax of John's ministry. This is the climax of our gospel. Okay, this is the gospel that you affirm as a child of God. The God has provided a lamb. Why does he need to? Well, obviously, as I've already implied by my previous statement, these, these sacrifices were also to underscore the seriousness of sin. Seriousness of sin. Sin is a serious matter. Your culture trivializes it today. But in the eyes of God, it's a serious matter. It's a serious matter, why? At its very root, it's a serious matter, not because of the suffering that you've, you've experienced because of sin, although that suffering is real, not because, of, not, not because of the consequences of sin in that sense. It's serious because God is a holy God. His holiness is emphasized from the very beginning, literally from the very beginning, from the creation narrative. The creation narrative leads up to a climax where God says the seventh day is holy. It's to be set aside. Why? Because seven's a magic number? No. Because God is a holy God. And he is the end of creation. He is the fullness of creation. He is the glory of creation. And so 
So from the very beginning, God is presented as a holy God. And that's why sin matters. God cannot overlook sin. It's not that he doesn't want to. He cannot overlook sin and remain a holy God. And who would want an unholy God? In our right minds, none of us would. But if God is holy, then your sin is an offense to him. It is something that he cannot abide. He hates it. And the sin of human beings calls down constantly his wrath. Remember what God says to Cain after he murders his brother? Your brother's blood calls out from the ground to me. Sin calls for God's wrath. And that wrath ultimately, as Jesus himself is going to teach in his ministry after this, is a that ultimately calls down hell. That's the destiny for unrepentant sinners. But of course, John is giving us the the glorious message of the gospel here that God has purposed to deal with sin. Those millions of lambs couldn't deal with sin. You can't deal with your own sin. John is preaching a message of repentance, you remember, right? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The wrath of God is about to break over your heads. You need to repent. But remember that repentance does nothing in and of itself. Your being sorry because of something you did doesn't undo it, right? Most of us have experienced that pain of committing some sin, and there, no matter how sorry we felt about it, we could not undo it. We certainly couldn't, in and of ourselves, bring any good out of it. The only one who could deal with sin is God. If he doesn't deal with sin, we are utterly without hope. But of course, John is saying here, he has. God has dealt with sin. He is the only one who could provide a sacrifice that could make atonement for your sin. Your good works can't make atonement for it. Your best intentions, your heartfelt tears of repentance can't do it. But God has provided a sacrifice that can do it. He has given the lamb. Just as Isaac said to his father, Lord, Father, where is the lamb? The answer is God will provide the lamb. Abraham knew it even better than he thought he knew it, I'm sure. God provided the lamb. In fact, God himself is the lamb.
We are on holy ground here, aren't we? We're on holy ground when we think about these things. That the love of God was such that he went to this extent to make atonement for your sin so that he could take your sin away from you. And he took his sin away from you, your sin away from you by taking it upon himself, didn't he? Isn't that an astounding thing? Think of the worst thing that you've ever done in terms of, think of the, the trivial sins. You ever think about that? I sometimes think about the trivial sins I commit without even thinking of it and say, how thoughtless can I be to add that stupid, trivial sin to the load that my Savior bore for me? He takes away sin. The sins of the world, not just a few, the sins of all those who repent and place their faith in him. Your Savior is your Lamb. The one who, who brought about your salvation is the one who laid down his life to obtain that salvation for you. You have a wonderful, wonderful hope in Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God in perpetuity, for eternity. You know which book it is in the Bible where Jesus is called the Lamb most often? You should know from the call to worship. It's the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, over and over again, we see Jesus presented as the Lamb. He is eternally the Lamb who gained your salvation. It's in Revelation that we have that, that, that powerful image of the saints having washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, being made pure and holy. John announces the lamb. Everyone's going to see this lamb. Every person who ever lived is going to see the lamb of God, and either they are going to see in the lamb of God the one who bore their sins, who took their sins away, the one whom they follow, the one whom they love, or they're going to see the lamb in his wrath. And that's an image in Revelation as well. As we see the unregenerate calling out, trying to escape the wrath of this lamb. Because he's going to come in judgment over all those who have not come to him for salvation. So this is not only glorious good news, it is the most important news that anyone will ever hear as well, isn't it? It's this truth 
that you're called to base your life on. To have everything you do reflect this as the core of your faith. The work of your hands, the work of your mind, what you do with your free time. It all, it all goes back to this, doesn't it? That in Jesus Christ, forgiveness has been extended to you. Your sins have been taken away. So that now you can give him an offering of praise. You can serve him with your hands and mind, even through ordinary things, because he has cleansed you and made you worthy to worship and serve him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are uh, that, that you penetrated our thoughtless minds, our dead hearts, so that we saw, that we see now Jesus as the Lamb who takes away our sins. Oh, Lord, help us to be quick to avail ourselves of this wonderful truth. May we be a people who are quick to repent. You don't want to let, let a day, an hour go by. You repent quickly so that we can find that forgiveness which you've extended to us in Jesus Christ. And then help us, Lord, to... Extend that forgiveness to others as well. As you have poured your love into our hearts, help us to be a loving people who love you and love one another, who seek to glorify you in all things, and we will give you the praise for all of that. In Jesus' name, amen.